Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 60th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. On Monday, please join me. I'll be speaking to historian Dipesh Chakrabarti, and we'll be talking about globalization. We'll be talking about the COVID-19 situation in India. We'll be talking about the Anthropocene and biodiversity and many other topics, I'm sure. Today, we're going to be talking about the pandemic, the tech industry, and the changing ways we use social media with historian Margaret Amara. You can watch COVID calls. <clears throat> excuse me. You can watch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to COVID calls, the YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts on Podbean.com or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and for topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 5th, 2020, there are 6,703,686 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 6,581,066 yesterday. 1,885,197 of those are in the United States, and that's up from 1,864,538 cases yesterday. There are now a total of 108,708 deaths of COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 107,765 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Lillian Chieko Kimura, formerly of Bloomfield, New Jersey and Chicago, Illinois, passed away from COVID-19 on April 23rd in Albany, New York. She was 91. She was born in 1929 in Glendale, California. During World War II, at age 13, her family was forced to leave their home and were incarcerated in a remote area of California at the Manzanar War Relocation Center. There, her life was influenced by the work of the YWCA, which served to educate Japanese-American women and girls interned at the camp and help prepare them for resettlement after the war ended. Following the war, she moved with her family to Chicago and graduated from the University of Illinois with a master's in social work and became a program director at the Olivet Community Center in Chicago. She worked for the YWCA of Chicago and later served at the national level, rising to become the associate executive director of the YWCA in the United States. In keeping with the YWCA's mission of eliminating racism, empowering women and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all people, she dedicated her career to civil rights advocacy, especially for Asian Americans and women. She was an active leader in the Japanese American Citizens League, JACL, eventually becoming the first woman elected as JACL national president in 1992. She was also actively involved in JACL's campaign directed to the redress movement, which provided reparations for Japanese Americans interned during World War II and helped bring congressional attention to the issues of knowledge to of the issues to acknowledge the violation of rights of Japanese Americans as US citizens. The movement influenced President Jimmy Carter to sign an act in 1980 to establish the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. This commission completed its fact-finding task in 1982 and published its report, Personal Justice Denied. This report led to the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1998, which was signed by President Reagan. In agreement with JACL, Lillian felt strongly that reparations include funding to educate the public and future generations about the internment in order to prevent future civil rights violations. She was actively involved in bringing an exhibit to the Ellis Island Immigration Museum in 1998 to bring visibility about the Japanese internment to a wider audience. She continued to use her experience and knowledge to advocate for women and other minority voices well into her retirement and was involved in the American Jewish Committee and was a docent at the Ellis Island Museum. In addition to her work with the YWCA and JACL, Lillian was a lifelong learner. 
She loved to read and was never without a book or the New York Times crossword puzzle, which she completed in ink. She enjoyed traveling, often with her mom and niece, to JACL meetings and judo tournaments, as well as all over the world. She was an avid seamstress, and she was proud of her entire family. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today and my guest. Let me introduce my guest, Margaret O'Mara. She is the Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. She teaches and writes about the political, economic, and metropolitan history of the modern United States. Her research focuses on the high-tech industry, American politics, and the connections between the two. Her most recent book is a history of the technology industry from the 1940s to the present, titled The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. It came out just last year. She's also the author of one of my personal favorite books, Cities of Knowledge, which came out in 2005, among many other works. She also writes frequently for public audiences, and she is also a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. Margaret, thank you for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's great to be here. So I'd like to start the way I've been starting every every session, just find out how you're doing, where you're calling in from, and what's the pandemic situation there today? I'm calling in from Seattle. Uh, we were one of the first, we were the first U.S. hotspot. We were one of the early places to go into shelter in place to sort of, uh, and, and so we've been at this since, since early March. Um, at my university is one of the very first ones to go online um, it, as the can, pandemic, pandemic grew. Uh, just today, uh, we are, King County, which is where Seattle is, is uh, moving into uh, modified sort of the next phase. Um, it's called phase 1.5 of our of our opening up. So things like restaurants will be able to open at a very limited capacity, retail very limited capacity. Um, we did flatten the curve here. Um, we're really lucky. Uh, we have a huge. Um, Seattle has been on the map for a lot of reasons during the COVID times um, because we are also a hub of global health and health research and hospitals. And so actually, I, I think that our, we've got a lot of hospital beds and we have a lot of capacity um, and relative to some other metro areas like New York, for example, we our population is not as large. So while we did um, have um, a lot of a lot of my fellow Washingtonians, including some people known to me, um, die of COVID and 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 many others who get sick. We we did not have um, an overwhelmed healthcare system, so that's one thing to be grateful for. But then it's still we're still still have a long road ahead. So we'll see how things go. So you reached the peak of cases there in King County earlier in April, or in in April, not in not in May. Yeah, a little a little earlier. Um, and um, although I think we were still grow, we were growing, but our real I think, you know, we started feeling, you know, we had the, some of the earliest cases in the United States. Um, and, um, you know, at the beginning of March, I, I remember canceling a trip to New York City, feeling like I didn't before things had officially shut down, feeling like I didn't want to be someone who unwittingly carried the COVID virus to New York City. <laughs> and, and now yeah. looking back on it, um, you know, I and at the time I felt so odd and so kind of embarrassed to be canceling out on something I'd commit to, committed to do. And it's amazing how many things, um, yeah. just how much has, has changed and how much our thinking and our understanding of, of our, our world and this disease in particular has, has changed and changed us. I really hope people are writing things like that down. I mean, even mm -hmm. how your thinking might have changed over a couple of days. Now, you would have mm -hmm. had to have been on that plane if probably 60 days before you were worried uh, yeah. to be part of yeah. that. Yeah, the spreading was yeah. happening earlier. But I have a very clear memory getting on the train to go into Philadelphia. It must have been around March uh, 10th or 11th. And I had a mask. Mm -hmm. And at that point, there was like there was like a strong push not to use masks. Yes. It, um, yes. And it was confusing why there was a sense like, well, we don't want people taking up PPE who shouldn't, but also just that it doesn't work. And, you know, the ultimate mm -hmm. chastisement, which came from my brother, said, what are you doing wearing a mask? You know, so I remember distinctly kind of tucking it in my pocket. I'm sitting on an Amtrak train. Mm. And I mean, just these little flashes of 
Yeah. Things that which even two weeks later would have seemed absolutely absurd. I know. I know. I remember the first time I wore a mask to the grocery store and I felt incredibly self-conscious mm-hmm. doing it. I was one of the fewest few people in the store. And this was after Seattle right. was locked down. Um, right. This was well into the uh, but it was it was a very strange. Yeah, there's been so many things that have just been the upside down. Right. The things that we expected. Um, and the presumptions we had uh, of the things we were supposed to do and, and the cultural kind of ideas about what, and I think they're also continuing to change. I think in the last week with the, you know, that we're talking on June 5th, we're, we're a week into this extraordinary week, which we're going to talk about, but these mass protests also have kind of altered our perception of, is it okay to go outside and, be in the proximity with people if you're wearing a mask or sometimes if you're not. I mean, we're seeing all of this video of, of mass gatherings that is kind of, and the pandemic has suddenly gone to the back burner of our brains. Well, that was what I was going to ask you about next. Um, Since I got the status report on, on the pandemic there, what about the George Floyd protests there in Seattle? They've gotten some significant Mm -hmm. news coverage even here on the East coast. Yep. Um, they have been, we have had significant protests. We have also had um, up in, for, for the first, the, for the first part of this week, um, incidents as so many other cities have experienced of police violence and sort of pushback um, uh, that has been recorded on cell phone video. Um, and it's very interesting in the Seattle, not, not everyone may be aware of the history here. The Seattle Police Department is actually under a consent decree because of past abuses. Um uh, that was going to be lifted, and now they've walked back from get that going away. So this mm-hmm. new scrutiny, um, uh, new, the you know June first was a what, the night of June first. There was a an incident that was widely sh- sort of maybe something people have seen widely shared on social media, kind of a above ground view of the a row of police pushing you know kind of tear gassing protesters in the moment when it started, um, and a pretty compelling. Uh, you know, the video is it's telling a story that protesters were not peaceful and, and the police were were more aggressive. And this is happening the first day of Pride Month in a historically gay neighborhood in a city with a lesbian mayor, which is another layer of, of kind of complication. Right. But the longer history, too, is Seattle 21 years ago was the site of the famous, quote unquote, battle in Seattle, which was the protest that met the meeting of the WTO in Seattle, which Seattle's leadership, business and political leadership saw as this kind of putting Seattle on the map, you know, having this incredible sort of multilateral meeting at in Seattle. And it was this protest against globalization that that interestingly involved. There were kind of some overlapping actors and some mm-hmm. of the same frustrations and and um, uh, same dynamics present in 1999 as there are in 2020, this kind of um, the, it, and actually played out on some of the same streets in downtown Seattle, mm-hmm. the main shopping mm-hmm. street, Pine Street, um, and some of, you know, these these stores like Nordstrom and Macy's and these other chain stores this year were, were the buildings were, mm-hmm. were vandalized and some of these stores were looted um, earlier this week. So, and the police then, the police response then, Right. Um, was, you know, ended up in the firing of the police chief. It was sort of famously violent. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we have a history. That continuity is an important one. And yet, uh, uh, this is, I want to ask you about this um, because you were mentioning a minute ago the videos, but there's a critical historical shift as well between now and then. And that's uh, technological in terms of the devices that we carry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the platforms that make it possible for you know social media platforms and and TikTok and Twitter and everything else that's allowing people to basically gather these images and then curate them mm-hmm. sometimes um, with the intention of of uh, bringing injustice to light, other times with the intention of sowing discord or even manipulating mm-hmm. images or dragging images that have nothing to do with what's happening on the streets of Seattle or Minneapolis mm-hmm. and putting it in that context. I mean, this is one of the areas you really study. What's your take on the role of social media and these new devices in the midst of um, these protests and this moment mm-hmm. of violence we're facing? Well, it's defining it in the way that television defined the WhatsApp uprisings and the other violence, urban violence of the 1960s. 
um, including both on American soil and beyond the violence in Vietnam, the other, you know, sort of moments of, of these flashpoints. Um, and and this the new, now we're getting everything mediated through cell phones, from smartphone cameras, and that's again it, you have its citizen journalists, so to speak, or citizen witnesses, um, and it also is uh, you know finding attribution, finding determining you know you see some incendiary piece of video, and then you find out oh actually that was three years ago. Um, and it, so, but I think this is showing kind of social media and all of its, all of its complicated glory and, and prop, it's all of its problems all on, on display that social media is this, you know, look, we, we know, we, we know of George Floyd's murder, um, mm-hmm. because of, and the circumstances of it because of a Facebook live video, which is something that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg cited to his employees this week, kind of saying, look, we're doing, quote unquote, good things. You know, we're necessary, important. We're kind of bringing this transparency. And that certainly has been Silicon Valley's argument historically, that more transparency and free flow of information is good and eliminating gatekeepers who might, you know, who are curating the information Hmm. for you is, is you're actually empowering people by giving them that access to this unfettered information. But it also is, you know, yes, it is bringing transparency. We're seeing all these incidents of police violence that are now visible where they were invisible. But as you point out, it's also a tool for, you know, we all, you know, we have our, our bubbles, our silos, we have our information being delivered by algorithm, it's being delivered by in, in a way that is designed to maximize ad buys and ad sales on the internet and our data is being monetized. So it's, and at the same time, I think it should, it's, it should be fair to point out that in this longer, this period since February, March, in the United States and the globe, as economies have shut down and so much more of what we're doing is going online, as you and I are having this conversation right now, for sure. example, that the internet's still working. Like it, the yeah. sort of scaling up and the agility of so many of these platforms and these companies to kind of vastly increase their user base and adapt to different uses. It is imperfect. And I, but it, I, you know, so I think that's the one, that's one of, to me, that's what mm-hmm. makes the, the tech industry so interesting to, as a, as an object of study. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's not as easy to kind of just blanket condemnation nor blanket praise is adequate to really capture right what's going on and we still and our brains aren't really wired to take in all of this information much less the kind of complicated nature of how we're supposed to evaluate this and appreciate it i had a great conversation a couple weeks ago with megan finn and Mm -hmm. uh, with ryan ellis and we were talking about exactly this you said that the the capacity um so the internet capacity seems to have been the one system in this entire 14 weeks, that's been up to the demand. Yeah. Um, and also social media companies um, and the internet communication facilitators like StreamYard we're using or Zoom mm-hmm. or others mm-hmm. seem to have um, now just become absolutely irreplaceable in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, they've moved to, somehow they've moved to an even more central position in our lives. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for me to it's hard for me to, to, <laughs> to fathom. I mean, as a person yeah. who's, who studies that, what do you think about that? I mean, how do we remain somehow critical of these companies? How do we somehow take a critical stance when mm-hmm. we absolutely rely on them mm-hmm. as we do in this moment? Yeah. There are information utilities. They are basic, you know, providing a basic service. And I think this is, I mean, this is also where uh, thinking more broadly about the history of information infrastructures and and public service is useful, right? So, you know, we had the same patterns of dependency on the telegraph and the railroad, <laughs> um, and it was something that fueled um, moves to to regulate those those industries and kind of put some guardrails around them. So, I think there's there's sort of a lot of different interesting things at this moment has underscored for us. I think on the one, it has, after a, a several years of tech lash, I wouldn't say the tech lash is over, not by a long shot, but mm-hmm. it has kind of gotten everyone to step back a, a little bit from, you know, you can't delete Facebook. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you don't necessarily want to. That that there are some serve there's some functions that some these big companies and platforms are serving that are essential to a life work school, and even if you personally don't like them, your institution, your workplace, or your school is is using them, and right. so you're we're kind of in it. So I think that I think that underscores something that Silicon Valley companies don't really like, which is the the idea of stronger regulations and guardrails around those companies in a way that's comparable to the way that large industries and essential industries have been regulated in the past. And by that, I I think there are a lot of different ways that American history that the American in American history we can see how this plays out. Um, we can see, you know, antitrust means a lot of things. Oftentimes it's equated with break them up, right? You you right. take the, take a big and make it small. But the way that antitrust law has functioned in the in American history since 1890 has been more often regulating and putting guardrails around a large company. Mm-hmm. Um a kind of as you know sort of Teddy Rooseveltian um a, agreement to keep things big it's okay if they're big as long as there's some containment. And we see incidents of essential information infrastructure. AT&T, for example, was, you know, for from 1914 to the early 80s was a regulated monopoly in that way. Mm-hmm. So let's let's stay with this for a second, because um, you wrote in a really one of your great your op-eds, by the way, are amazing. And, and you had oh, one you. last year when you talked about, um, you know, why is it that we hadn't thought about um, regulating big tech mm-hmm. yet? And particularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's issues around whether or not they promote speech or do they just mm-hmm. facilitate speech? Mm-hmm. What's the relationship between Facebook and speech? It's very complicated. And I wonder yes. if you could take into that because one of the key observations you make is that in your view in the 90s was probably OK to leave those companies quasi unregulated or lightly mm-hmm. regulated. But now it's not. We're in a, we're in a different time period here. I'd like to yeah. hear more of your thinking on that. Yeah. Well, I think that's why the sort of historically situating th- these companies is really useful. And um, and look, uh, the tech industry is is not ter- been terribly interested in looking backwards. They're about building the future. It's part of what's mojo, made Silicon Valley. Yeah. yeah, it's not their mojo, right? Um, and um, it's kind of nice to put a plaque on something, but that's kind of orthogonal to the business. Like, who cares? But it actually is very relevant. And I think it really helps us understand the regulatory, why the regulatory environment looks the way it does. Because so the the um, the Telecom Act that, that nestled within it was the Communications Decency Act, which the provision section three, 230, which is the one that is the, you know, the, been in the news of late and mm-hmm. is the one kind of governing what. Um, this, what platforms uh, that it indemnifies plat- pu- platforms from from being responsible for what's published on their platform by third parties. That um, that was 1996, early 1996. So early 1996. Let's see, Amazon had been in existence for two years, and its website had been live, I think, for about a year. Um, Google didn't exist yet. Um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page were in grad school, just hanging nice. out. They hadn't even started. Maybe they'd started grad school. They were just starting grad school yeah. that fall. And um, Mark Zuckerberg, if I'm getting my math right, was probably in fifth or sixth grade. So right. the, at the time and the dynamics there, which is so interesting, there's a sort of great political history because it's this is, of course, 1996, this is one year after Republicans have come into you know, power in the House. This is the Gingrich Revolution, right? You have Clinton in the White House. So you have, you have a partisan fractures and Democrats and Republicans agreeing on nearly nothing. And the one place where Clinton, Gore, and Gingrich, three significant people, really generally agreed was that what Silicon Valley wanted Washington should give them that because this was an extraordinary, creative, growing industry, and the internet was the future. And internet access was a good thing, and we needed to promote it. And so, the argument that the tech companies made was kind of this David and Goliath argument, in which they were David, which is the Goliaths were the mm-hmm. telecom companies, were the Comcasts, and they were saying, you know, don't you keep the internet free. Let us regulate ourselves. And don't dictate what can, can is because if there's this, you know, or if there are these constraints, it's really going to, we're letting, the, 
it's going to keep the thousand flowers of the internet from blooming. And they were right. Their argument had a lot of validity in 1996. And so in a way it was this, this kind of section 230 was a, you know, let's stand up for the little guy against Mm -hmm. the big guys. And we're in a vastly different technical landscape now, vastly different. Um, And look, section 230 is just one piece of this larger kind of let's let the internet be generally unregulated, like let it bloom. And that worked a lot in the early days when we all did dial up and CompuServe and AOL were like the names that come to mind instead of Facebook and Google. And now it's much different. So what I, you know, I think it's an argument for something that, again, American lawmakers have done through, uh, both parties have done throughout American history, which is kind of updating the laws to respond to what the companies have become. And this is just like happened in the early 20th century with railroads and steel and oil, all these new industries mm-hmm. that grew very fast, that grew up in a way that, in a pretty much entirely unfettered way. And that there had to be some retroactive regulation and antitrust enforcement to try and get some balance back between capital and you know, the people and the powerful, so to speak. So part of this is certainly about, um, you know, monopoly and just about crowding out competition. But some of it mm-hmm. also is bring it back to, you know, when we started this conversation um, this past week and the responsibility, let's say, of social media companies in mm-hmm. um, as news providers or somehow facilitators. I mean, this has been, um, you know, you wrote a you wrote a piece in which you asked this question, um, what are the politics of of Silicon Valley? What are the politics mm-hmm. of, you know, social media companies? And you say in this piece, you said Silicon Valley does have a politics. It's and so Democrats have been critical, Republicans have been critical, but you say the politics is neither liberal nor conservative nor libertarian. I love this line. Despite the dog-eared copies of Ayn Rand novels you might find strewn about cubicles of startup in Palo Alto, but it is, as you say, techno-optimism. And that is somehow, I mean, I don't know what we do with that in this particular moment. You know, techno-optimism being this idea that there's always going to be a technological fix, I guess, Mm -hmm. and that somehow technology transcends politics. It's in its own time zone and politics Mm -hmm. is beneath um, you know, whatever sort of new device, new gadget, new network is is coming mm-hmm. along. And at the same time, this week we had Facebook employees basically stage a digital walkout because they're unhappy mm-hmm. with Zuckerberg looking the other way at Trump's um, statements inciting violence. Yep. So walk us through a little bit how you see. I mean, I'm curious in in how you think where you think this techno optimism comes from, but then also mm-hmm. why do we let it pass or or yeah. Are we at a point now where we say, sorry, you don't get a pass anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's deeply rooted. It, it It is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg talks about making the world more open and connected as that's what Facebook does. And he sort of says that like a mantra. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he didn't come up with that idea himself. This is one that very much has, you know, deep, deep roots in Silicon Valley. And I think we could kind of maybe isolate the point of origin in the late 60s and early 70s when a group of young technologists who were in, you know, going to Berkeley and Stanford during the Vietnam War era, protesting the war in the late 60s. And at the same time as they're protesting the establishment, they are getting turned on to computing and realizing that these amazing machines have incredible potential, but they're all controlled by the man, right? They're in academic laboratories, they're in big corporations, they're in government, particularly military agencies, and they want that those computers to be liberated. And so the personal computer industry, um, which grows a number of places, but Silicon Valley becomes a hub of it, a main hub of it, kind of has its origins in its before it was an industry, it was a movement, it was a movement of men and women, although the women kind of Data out of the picture pretty quickly, but um, there was still, it, it was at the beginning more of sort of an egalitarian movement coming out of the new left, but different from the new left. Whereas the, you know, the, the new left is seeing political protest and organized politics as a way to make change, the change they want to see in the world, and why the new left also increasingly includes, you know, feminism, black power. Um, uh, kind of broader kind of social justice issues embedded within it. Mm-hmm. The 
and this is what um, my friend and fellow Silicon Valley historian Fred Turner calls the new communalists. These this group kind of comes out and sees computers compute and making the computer personal, making it a an individualized desktop sized device, which the technology is at the early 70s, finally reaching an inflection point that makes that possible. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, con connecting those computers to one another so that people can communicate as you and I are across the country, right. communicate by computer. That that actually will be the means to the end that the new left is seeking, but it is a a philosophy and a techno tech first philosophy that sees the tech as the means, and really, quite frankly, strips all of the sort of racial and gender issues out of it. Um, in a way, kind of turns away from the messiness of politics. It's very very messy, and that's something that. Silicon Valley over time has become even more of an intensely sort of engineering first culture where if you write your software code really well, A leads to B leads to C leads to D, right? It's all, there's a linearity to it and a tidiness to it and a beauty to it that is, that's without all of the, and they look at places like Washington, D.C., and they look at sort of traditional political organizing and they see old bureaucracies or, and they're like, what a mess. Mm -hmm. this is clean so this is all you know i think that the kind of that's why i called it the you know the church of techno optimism it's this right. kind of politics and a religion this idea that tech will get us there and if we're not getting there then we just need to make the tech better and that has also been kind of underlying the, the conversation about privacy and all of the the flaws and the problems that have been identified in the current tech regime, um, there's been this undercurrent, even among some of tech's fiercest critics, that can't you guys just build a better platform? Can't you just make the algorithm better? And there's plenty of room to for that. Um, you know, we have you know the, these th these tools that are ostensibly neutral are actually very biased, not least because they're designed and implemented by a group of upper middle class, mostly white, mostly male people who went to a few set of elite schools who live on the West Coast of the United States. So they're thinking with that, you know, it's very hard to think about your, you know, global markets, much less what the possible impact might be. And the other thing that I think that goes with this this history is not only did the computer industry, her personal computer industry, which kind of gives rise to the internet industry, which gives rise to what we have now. And it's connections of people too. It's some of the same people and the kind mm -hmm. of rabbis and gurus and mentors who are kind of shaping mm -hmm. the culture. It is both seeing computers as a tool of kind of a new politics of, of sorts, but it's one that really ignores politics and turns right. away from politics and sees both big P and small P politics as just not, not having anything. If we just build better products and heads down, ship great product, grow, 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 get big, 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 go to scale, you know, all the scale, growth, all those things, agility, those things are all kind of baked into Silicon Valley's idea of itself. Then, you know, we don't need to pay attention to this other stuff. It's noise. And the problem is in the last five years, it's been pretty clear that that noise that not only are these platforms helping create the noise <laughs> and they're shaping right. the noise, but they really need to get, you know, and, and someone like Mark Zuckerberg not only left college early, but he achieved great wealth like many other of these tech titans at a very, very early age. And mm -hmm. I, I thought about this a lot as I was writing the book and thinking mm -hmm. about, Oh my God, they were like 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. What was I like sure. at that age? I'm really glad that I don't think about the world the way that I thought. And, you know, when you achieve incredible success, not at, and immense wealth at a very early age, you kind of get this, like, I'm good. Like everything I'm yeah. doing is awesome. And yeah, why in. are you telling me something else? You, know, you certainly lock into a worldview, no doubt about yeah. it. And, yep. and I mean, I'm, so I want to, first of all, I just want to remind everybody, you're listening to, to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Margaret O'Mara today about tech and tech industry and COVID-19. And just to go back to a second, I really like that you talk about this moment in the 1960s and 70s. And I wonder if you could um, 
were there some missed opportunities there? I mean, as you think back, were there some moments there in the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. or even into the 80s? And I really liked how you talked about it. The, even into the 90s, it's like David and Goliath. So these companies mm -hmm. are still basically saying, like, pick on IBM. Yeah. Pick on General Motors. Yeah. Pick on yeah. AT&T. Leave us alone and let us do our yeah. long hair creative thing. Yeah. We're not hurting anybody. Right. And then, of course, it's flipped around by mm -hmm. certainly by now. Um, but what were some of those moments in those earlier days when the mm -hmm. tech industry might have, I don't know, become more democratic? Yeah. The, the, the people at the top might have looked more like America. I mean, this is a question we're asking mm -hmm. in higher education, too. But I yeah. think let's turn it on on tech for a second. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of moments where things could have gone differently. Would it necessarily have meant te made tech more democratic? I I don't know. Um, or or egal or truly kind of more diverse. Um, I don't know. But you know, one moment um, when we when we talk about tech privacy, so the lack of the U.S. doesn't have a privacy law that prevents Facebook or Google or whoever to or these third party ad brokers, these data brokers that are that's a very, very big, you know, factor in all of this, keeping them from monetizing our personal information. Why do we have that? That's terrible. Well, actually, there was a big debate over computer privacy in the 1960s and into the 70s. Um, and and again, this is where kind of placing this tech history in broader historical context helps us understand what what did and didn't happen. There was great anxiety as mainframe computing and electronic data processing spread to business and government and all of this sort of statistical data was now on punch cards and tapes about the violation potential violations to individual liberties but this is also the mid to late 60s going into the 70s what else is going on then well let's see first you have j edgar hoover's fbi which you know um people were accusing of you know domestic spying turns out they were right um so there's that there's, so there's surveillance by law enforcement that's a great causing a great deal of anxiety on the left. You have a you have Vietnam, you have um, kind of the great sort of breakdown of trust in government leadership because of Vietnam, and then you also have vast growth in social programs through the Great Society, which conservatives don't like, and see these Great Society programs also gobbling up all these information, and all of these different mm. entities are. And then, of course, on top of that, you have Watergate. <laughs> so, so all of these things that are kind of making different parties skeptical of, nervous about the fact that government, the U.S. government has so much information. So it turns out the entire privacy debate on Capitol Hill, of which there are many hearings and many pieces of legislation introduced, mm. a lot of it increasingly focused on what's the government know about you and what's your right to know about what the government knows. It culminates in the Privacy Act of 1974, um, which is as you look at the text of the law, it's all about computers. It starts off talking about computers, but it significantly doesn't focus on what private sector is doing. Um, mm -hmm. It was, you know, signed into law by Gerald Ford. The Ford administration made sure that there was, you know, we kind of kept kept that in the just the government box and that free enterprise was not impinged on it anyway. Now, look, that the fact that we don't have other, you know, a more robust or more expansive national privacy law means that, you know, Facebook and Google exist, right? So we could say, well, yeah, it allows them to, you know, allows surveillance capitalism to happen, but could you have possibly made money on the internet another way? You know, what would have the internet economy have looked like and what sort of, what are the other economic upsides of the growth of these platforms um, and, and the broader growth of the internet economy that would have been for um, kind of curtailed by that? Um, so, you know, that's one moment. I think there's also debate in the early 70s over should computer communication be a regulated like telephones? Right, and right. should it be a kind of, you know, should AT&T do it or should another big provider do it? Um, and that would have meant, you know, the Internet wouldn't be the backbone we're all floating on. And you would have kind of a spoken hub control. It would be a very, very different online world. Um, it would be something akin, maybe more akin to some of the systems that were um, Western European countries were putting online around the same time. It would be much mm. more regulated. You know, we would have a different, but would we, mm. would that be more democratic? It's hard to say. I mean, it's kind of what's, 
But there are a lot of paths not taken. Again, this, I mean, we see this again and again in all sorts of fields of history, but this is, this is one where we, we saw we've been here before and we chose a path and that enabled certain things to happen. It also helped us set up the problems that we have now. Well, let's talk about another another sort of worldview of the tech industry that you've written about, I think, throughout your career, and it's it's the the interrelationship between high tech and urbanization. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you have a chapter in your first book about uh, you know basically why wasn't Philadelphia the first Silicon Valley? You know, mm-hmm. and I always have my students read that, and and, um, and I guess I'd like to know what you you know. A little bit more of your thinking on this, because it, it does seem to be a kind of a consistent sense of what uh, an urban space should look like from tech's mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, um, and I don't think that's unrelated to where we find ourselves today in terms of the pandemic, in terms mm-hmm. of where vulnerable populations to the pandemic are, and I think also in relation to to George Floyd. So, mm-hmm. how did Silicon Valley? develop its sense of what the right space to be is what's Mm -hmm. the ideal city for them yeah well the silicon valley is the is a city in the suburb right it's it's a place that grows you know one of the things that i explored in my in my first i mean the basic question i went into with cities of knowledge which was published 16 years ago (laughs) which is astounding um is was why is high tech in the suburbs and what did the cold war have to do with it and it was a combination of the patterns of defense spending, the broader sort of sunbelt patterns of defense spending and, and things kind of embedded in the defense contracting and procurement process that, among other things, encouraged facilities to be decentralized so that they'd be out of the way, wouldn't be a ground zero for when the Soviet bombs, you know, started raining down on presumably on center cities. Um, but there were a whole lot, a lot of other things going on. I and mean, there's it's the age of mass suburbanization. It's the um, it's it's kind of combining trying to recruit and retain workers with kind of making these facilities look like college campuses competing because you're competing with colleges and universities for this manpower. Uh, and and also these no, baked sort of baked in notions about to be a knowledge worker is to occupy a certain sort of space that not only are these these are these are special people and they need special spaces. And that has persisted over time. What's really interesting is since Cities of Knowledge came out, the tech companies returned to cities and they returned to cities, not unilaterally. We still have, you know, uh, urban, you know, suburban campuses, um, Redmond, Washington, Microsoft, Mountain View, California, Google, uh, Menlo Park, California, Facebook. That are these self-contained playgrounds that get right. like fancier and fancier, you know, they kind of one up each other. Like Google had the free food and the free bikes. And then Facebook had like the main street with all the amazing like coffee shops and, and all these, you know, sort of this cornucopia. I mean, it's great. I remember a number of years back, a, a, a friend of mine who, who works at Facebook, um, my my family was down there for um for my sabbatical when I was working on the code <laughs> and I went with my daughters to Facebook um with another family and their friends and the kids were just like we when we grown up we want to work at Facebook because it was basically free snacks and ice cream <laughs> it's right. like Nirvana yeah. anyway um so that that's that's part of it and yeah. and um but they moved back to cities and kind of retained the 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 companies that were in cities kind of retained that self-contained playground Mm. so you have twitter moving south of market in san francisco and they the hope they got a big tax break from the city to in this hope that it was going to enliven this neighborhood and everyone stayed in and had their free snacks and inside the four walls of the twitter building and amazon didn't have a self-contained building but kind of came into an entire district in the center of seattle but still, it's kind of referred to here as Amazonia. It's very Amazon. I mean, there are other tech companies there too, but it's a very, um, it's kind of its own, it's a distinctive tech space um, and one in which um, perhaps people who are who are not part of that world or feel that they can't easily pass or blend in as a techie um, may not be comfortable on those streets and in those spaces. And certainly none of the retail or restaurant is really catering to to them. 
So I think, and, and what has happened is we've seen, particularly in the last decade of where we've had immense tech growth and tech prosperity and this intense concentration of tech in certain metro areas, these coastal cities in the United States, but this is a global phenomenon too, but cities where, you know, up until COVID, Seattle was, Seattle's Bill Gibbs problem was too much growth, too much too much, too much, too much tech. I mean, there was a political backlash against the growth of companies like Amazon, in part because of gentrification, of pushing people out. It's of still, you know, the tech may have moved from the suburb to the city, but it retained this special bubble that made it thrive mm -hmm. and has been part of its success story since the very beginning. It's why Philadelphia wasn't tried and, and was not able until quite recently. You know, I, I'm amazed. I've been amazed, though, in the last decade or so when I've gone back to Philly and gone through University City and gone sure. through, you know, University City Science Center, which was a great effort that Philadelphia, that the Penn and other and Drexel and other universities made, right? That now there's so much there there. Like, I mean, sure. relative to when I was a graduate student at Penn and relative to what had they had struggled to, you know, there there's a lot more going on. So it's um, but all of the, you know, what we're seeing right now on the streets of cities like Seattle, or there are a lot of these knowledge hubs where you're seeing mass protests. And interestingly enough, the people who are participating in them are people who are working in tech mm. <laughs> and also people who have been dis, you know, who have been impacted by the a tech tech driven prosperity where they're, you know, the minority owned businesses have been replaced by white owned, you know, pot shops. <laughs> there's yeah. a, that's, that's a very Seattle thing. There's, there's like a, um, there's a, there's a corner of in Seattle, um, 23rd and union. Those of you who are, who are Seattleites will, will, this is, I, I've just been, it's, it's where I very close to my, um, to where I used to live. And I just seeing the transformation of that, those four corners from a majority minority black owned, um, poor, um, but it, it, you know, kind of catering to people of lower income, um, a variety of, of shops and stores, some of them great, some of them not, um, and then being replaced by this intensely white, gentrified space catering to highly educated 20-somethings who want to buy illegal marijuana or want to go to Whole Foods. It's a very interesting But are we going to see now as a result of, of COVID-19, are we going to see um, tech companies abandon those spaces? I mean, their mm -hmm. employees are just going to be Working from home, I have a friend who works for Apple, and they said they've been talking about about this as sort of like mm -hmm. work where you are kind of kind yep. of thing. And Twitter, you wrote about you know this idea mm -hmm. that Twitter might do the the same thing. So you're talking about yeah. a transformation where you bring first you go you create the the techno optimistic suburb, then mm -hmm. some of these companies bring the suburb into the city, particularly mm -hmm. in areas where they can do it without any pushback, any political yep. pushback, where they're welcomed with open arms. Yep. And now the pandemic has demanded distance work if you can do it, if you're one of the people who's lucky enough to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. Yep. So what happens now? What happens to it's those places? Really now? interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah. Twitter, Facebook, Facebook has announced that it's going to everyone can, you know, stay from home. So it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Facebook has already said the quiet part out loud kind of in its early announcements last week saying that. You know, if you're in a different metro area, we're going to essentially adjust your your cost, your your salary accordingly. <laughs> ah, so okay. oh, I, I that. think that this is there's a big upside for, you know, uh, I, I, I see this really. You're not going to get Palo Alto salary living in Sioux Falls. Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. And so so on the one hand, it kind of opens up this geographic mobility for people in tech. Again, already a very privileged slice of metropolitan mm. populations. But, you know, you have people who maybe they come to Seattle or San Francisco in their early 20s to go work for a tech company. They are now in their early 30s. They're partnered. They're having perhaps they have small children. They want to buy a house. They're looking at the housing prices and they're like, I make a six figure salary, but I still can't afford anything within commuting distance of where I work. And they're thinking maybe I wouldn't it be nice to go to Boise? Wouldn't it be nice to go to a smaller metro where the quality of life is still, you know, I can kind of have the the amenities I like, but not be in this. 
Um, now, I don't think there's going to be a mass exodus because I think there's a reason that um, San Francisco and Seattle and other cities are so appealing to, and so overcrowded. And when, I remember 20 years ago when my husband and I were trying to rent it. We moved to San Francisco. We were trying to rent an apartment. And of course, it was horrible. It was the dot-com boom. And it's all so expensive. Yeah, from, and sure, my husband's yeah. boss at the time said, well, everything's so expensive in San Francisco because it's so nice and everyone wants to live here. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah. Like there's a sort of finite amount of land. And, right. um, and these are also places that have had very, this is another thing I wrote about for the times last year, which interestingly enough, I think got the most comments of anything I've written because it was about housing and California, which gets wow. all the Californians being like, um, so <laughs> yeah, strong opinions about housing. Yeah, but yeah. There have been these zoning, you know, there are these laws on the books that have limited residential, Build building. Seattle's eighty percent single family homes. It's ridiculous. Like mm-hmm. we love our bungalows, but please, like if you want to be a big accommodate yeah. people and not box people out, including the people who have lived in your city for whose families have been there for generations, and especially people of color, people who are, you know, somehow in some way marginalized from from full you know range of economic opportunity. Like you mm-hmm. dense, you gotta, you gotta densify folks and, and get over yourselves. Um, and, and so I have very little patience for, for the NIMBY politics of the progressive cities in which I've lived. Cause it's yeah. just, it's been very, it's, it's fueled inequality. It's fueled segregation. It is fueled. Um, it has not been sustainable. And this again is what we're seeing. All of these things are fueling the anger and the protest and the frustration that we are seeing on the streets. All of these things are interrelated. It's a system. Um, and it's, you know, I think, yes, this will, this is going to take some of the heat off of these very hot tech centric housing markets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a real blow to commercial real estate. I think that there are a lot of companies that are going to be looking at their bottom line and say, why should I be paying for all this office space when I can just have? Zoom and I can buy everyone a comfy office chair and call it good. So it's really going to change things. I just want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Margaret O'Mara and you can get a question in if you'd like to put it in YouTube live chat or you can put it up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. I want to stay with this though um, because. You know, in an earlier era of what would have been considered sort of cutting edge technology in America, um, and again, coming back to the sort of sense of urbanization in place, the notion of the university and the mm-hmm. university campus as the ultimate example and often held up, you know, as a, over many centuries, this is the example of the, of the this is the, the way you want to lay out where creativity mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the great campuses in the history of the world. And that's what big um, companies in the 60s and 50s, and yeah. even, in, even into the 80s, I think, we're still thinking of the corporate yeah. campus as a great um, as a great model. And, and I have to shout out to the awesome article that you and Bill Leslie wrote together 20 years ago. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it's yeah. a long time. It is fantastic. Y'all should go look it up. It's really good. It's a good example of what happens when you have a brilliant advisor who says, I have yeah. an idea already fleshed out. I just need you to go to Detroit. It was some of the most it's, enjoyable research I ever did. And yeah. I learned a lot in that. And I, yeah. Um, but one of the things I, I learned in that piece and, and, and back to this question is, is mm-hmm. that um, is something almost, you talk about faith even, you know, sort of the faith in the techno optimism, mm-hmm. the church of it. Yeah. There's something that is invoked, and universities do this on purpose. There's a mysticism yep. to the campus. And, um, you know, your individual experiences may vary, but, you know, the general sense is you've got to come to the congregate at the campus, and that's mm-hmm. where this mystical transformation happens. And I think IBM bought into that in the 1960s, and so did AT&T, and it's, you yeah. know, um, and now... Uh, then we're teaching remotely mm-hmm. and now we're working remotely. And yeah. so we're getting um, a run through of what it might look like um, to push back on those ideas. And yeah. I've been teaching at Drexel for almost 20 years. There is something very powerful about being together in that room mm-hmm. and being in yeah. that space. And even an intensely urban campus like Drexel, 
um, it still has so much to offer as a as a chance meetings and various things like that. Mm-hmm. But there's also there's a lot of democratizing opportunities that are foreclosed, <clears throat> I think, mm-hmm. when you yeah. commit to that, yeah. because it's expensive to make that campus and the climbing wall is mm-hmm. expensive and everything that goes along <laughs> with it is, is expensive and you miss out on certain other opportunities that distance learning may provide. So mm-hmm. I think I've just, for those who haven't been following what now I think is approaching a civil war within sort of higher, within higher ed about the issue of return. Mm-hmm. And whether or not higher education can actually be higher education if we mm-hmm. don't gather on the campus. Yeah. I guess I want to draw you in, not as a combatant, but as an analyst. I mean, mm-hmm. we have this. Are we at an inflection point? Are we going back to campus? I don't know. Well, there. Are, I mean, the, the sad truth is there are no good solutions. Right. And I mean, one of this does underscore is the, you know, that that higher education is very much a real estate story. And, um, you know, part of the wealth of, of campuses, of, of universities, not just comes from the, t- the property and the territory they inhabit and where it is, but also the income that comes from residential student bodies, from, um, from kind of offering, from the value proposition of offering, you know, this being in the seminar room, Professor Knowles, right, being there, being part of it, that the online experience is, you know, and, and colleges and universities around the United States had to, to you know, refund tuition and, and room and board and things this spring, to which was one big financial hit, because the online experience is not comparable. And it isn't, especially when it's kind of done on the fly. And all of us are like, Ooh, you know, all of a sudden, we suddenly have to become online, online professors. I, I mean, it's really complicated. So on the one hand, I think that there is a, um, yeah, there's there's a real pressure to there's a financial pressure um, that includes, I think, at, at large public universities like mine that have um, very lucrative sports team football teams. We have um, we have the football season. That's a not inconsequential factor in some of these decisions that are being made to come back. Because it's if you have a you know, you, even if you don't have fans in the stands, you have to have um, to have football. You need to have some you have to have college going on. Uh, that's the, them's the rules. <laughs> you have to have a university yeah. attached. At least one campus. student must be on campus. At least, so yes, at least one student must be yeah. on campus. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a, a piece of a larger puzzle, but then there's a larger question of, you know, you have international, national, international student bodies, you know, the sort of vectors of disease are, are tremendous. Um, you don't have the capacity for social distancing these. And, and then we have the reality of the, that all of these institutions, with the exception of perhaps a very privileged few at the tippy tippy top of the food chain, are still feeling the effects of the Great Recession of 10 years ago. Um, certainly in my institution, I'm at the University of Washington, it's our flagship public university. We are still not back to where we were before in 2007. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever will be in terms of state funding. Right. We increasingly relied on international and out-of-state student tuition, which is higher, to help balance the books, quite frankly, which was, you know, made a lot of Washington families unhappy because it was harder for kids from here to get into the state university. So there's this just really thorny nest of problems, but I think it's it's true. Like we do we do tend to, at, on the one hand, kind of overstate the value of the campus, and uh, you're exactly right. It's kind of this mythos, and it's the same mythos that Silicon Valley picked up that, you know, it's it's high priests like Steve Jobs helped promulgate, which is that you have these you know interactions at the water cooler, so you can never have stairways. Like everyone needs to be on the same floor. Right, so right. you know, like that's <laughs> yeah. companies you know insist on having these giant floor plates so no one yeah. would be on different yeah. floors, yeah. which is kind of funny. Um, but that kind of overstates. You know, I had a reporter ask me the other day, so are there any incidents of actual innovations that came from these serendipitous encounters? And I was ah. like. I couldn't think of any. The one I could think of that's yeah. always bandied about is 3M and the post-it note. And that's that's Minnesota. Like that's yeah. not that yeah, is that's not, not a Silicon Valley. Company. Yeah. So I think it's this mythos that and it also the same thing goes with college, right? Oh, you're just walking across the quad and you see your professor in his tweed jacket with the elbow patches and you know, yeah. smoking his pipe. And you know, there's this notion that we have of of what happens at the same time. There is an incredible value of being in the same room 
I miss my, this quarter. I missed my students so much. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same at all. But at the same time, I could have students who were, you know, work far flung. I mean, it does open up access to a wider amount of people. But are you delivering the same product and experience? I don't, I wish I had like the aha. This is the this is the way we should go. Then I would, you know, then I would win. But uh, but there's no good answers. I think that's why this is such a, as you put it, a civil war or sort of a struggle debate over what the right thing is to do and what is the real value of what we're building and delivering and how much should we go all in on online? You know, what do we give up as faculty members, you know, in terms of our own security? We're almost up on time, but I did want to get one more question in. Um, And it's because it's an election year. I think we do have to, I want to get your take on this. Mm -hmm. So um, we're living through the greatest disaster in American history since, um, I don't know, we'll say Vietnam or maybe, mm-hmm. maybe the Spanish flu. Uh, we're witnessing a protest and counter protest and violence against protest in the streets and the likes of which we haven't seen across the country since Vietnam era, since the civil rights era. Um, and we are, it's an election year. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you see the tech companies to come back to this. You know, they, I, I, I see that they have played a crucial role. Well, I'll put it this way. Information has obviously been at the center of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. has it? Who doesn't have it? How do we disseminate it? Is it true or not true? Maybe that's, yeah. that's a perennial concern, but it's been uh, very much at the center of all of this. And as you said earlier, um, Tech companies are deeply invested in sort of presenting themselves, I think, as the impartial arbiters, the the, the, the servants, mm-hmm. the information servants yes. in this moment. So I wonder, you know, just as we move towards the as we to move towards the election and Donald Trump, you can say what you want to about the guy, um, his use of social media, I mean, we can't talk about social media in the world without talking about Donald Trump. So what do you think? How, how, how are these issues going to play into the election? Do you see either party being able to really um, take a hard stand maybe on this issue of regulation Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. no, I just want to get your, it's a little early in the season, but I'm starting to to ask people who think about these things where they think their issue is going to filter through the election. I'm thinking a lot about it. I'm thinking, you know, I've, I, I'm teaching a class next, a seminar next year at UW on the year 1968. Just oh. it, there's enough going on because you you can do just 10 weeks on one year. I, I and taught I think that about class what, last year. <laughs> did, oh yeah, oh, I really good. did. We yeah, did yeah, we'll like, talk about it. Yeah. Sure okay, oh my cool, god, cool. it's one of the most fun classes I ever taught. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, I'm so it's glad amazing. you're doing that. Yeah. So think about you know, the 2020 is gonna like. 50 years from now, 60 years from now, like they're going to be some history professors teaching classes about 2012. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot going Absolutely. on. <laughs> a lot yeah, to go on. And of course, it's not just what happens, but how what's happening now is revealing much bigger things going on. And so revealing. And so the 2020 election, like my my book before this one was about pivotal presidential elections. Mm-hmm. And someone asked me the other day, like, will 2020 be a pivotal election? I was like, I think it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, don't want to predict yet, but seems like we got enough data right now. Um, and you're right. Uh, just Well, just as 1968 was defined in so many ways by television, it played out on television, that television became the medium that 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 told the story and heightened it. I think that, that social media, um, and we started this conversation talking about smartphones, I think, you know, the, but the smartphones kind of uploaded to social media is going to be kind of a, the defining medium in many ways. Um, Mm. of this uh of this year uh, and all the all the elements of this year and the and and the the regulatory question or as some might say the threat <laughs> in silicon valley is a really interesting one that un, in this in this hyper partisan moment it actually doesn't break down neatly on partisan lines in terms mm. of taking a tough stance on tech which i think is one reason you know behind all the professions of neutrality and not wanting to take sides that come out of the c suite of Silicon Valley companies, there's also a political calculation where a heavily democratic kind of left-leaning West Coast-based industry does not want to tick off Donald Trump. 
and the other Republicans in power. Um, and they've seen the seen what happens when you do, that there's actual material effects on your business if you do. Now, will that last beyond the, the Trump era remains to be seen. But what we do see is we see people in, you know, we have seen senators like Josh Hawley on the Republican side and Mark Warner on the Democratic side who are both talking different different means, different ends, different emphases, but are talking about put again, putting some guardrails on mm-hmm. and doing something about tech. At the same time, these the largest companies are building up their lobbying operations to sure. immense size. And so they are going to want to be at the table with what what's there. So it is going to be a a live issue. I think during the camp during the election, I think both social media and tech platforms as a as a place where all it's what's playing out, good, bad, ugly, mm-hmm. is going to continue just since 2016 to be the mm-hmm. the main focus of the action. But I think underneath and then after into 2021 and beyond, this bigger question about rebalancing the big tech power and the power of other smaller companies as well as consumers is going to, just as it did in the first 15 years of the 20th century, kind of take center stage. And, you know, we still have, we have regulatory agencies now, FTC is one example that came out of that earlier moment. And, and now we, we're going to, we're entering a new one. Margaret O'Meara, thank you so much for this hour. I really appreciate it. Uh, your perspectives. I want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls Monday through Friday at five o'clock Eastern time. And you can always catch it on YouTube live or you can always listen later. This is our 60th episode. I'm happy to say, and you can catch that anywhere you pick up podcasts and please join me on Monday. I'll be talking with Dipesh Chakrabarti. Um, He's a big thinker about global trends and deep global history and the Anthropocene. And I'm sure we're going to have a great conversation. Margaret, thanks again. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday, everyone. Okay. Take care. Bye.